The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. When it comes to uh, this time in our gathering and we uh, open the scriptures, I have three primary goals, three primary agenda items when I come to preach or when we come to preach because we've got a team and we want to build that team. The first is we want to read the text and so going back over the last five or six years we've as a congregation in the congregation read every verse in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts and in the book of Galatians and the book of Ruth and first and second Thessalonians and in the first 25 chapters of the book of Genesis. Firstly, we simply want to read the word. Why? Because the power is in the word, not in what anyone else says about the word. There is a power in the word. And we want to be a church that rests on the word, not what other people say about the word. The second thing, we want to put the full story into context. And that's why we're working through each book, chapter by chapter by chapter. And when we were going through the book of Acts, we would pause. In fact, the other book I mentioned, forgot to mention, was James. So when James wrote the book of James, and we got to that point in the book of Acts, we stopped and we went through the book of James. And then when Paul went to Corinth and to Ephesians, we didn't do those books, we'll come back to those. But uh, when we went to Thessalonica, we stopped, we went through the book of Thessalonians. Because it helps put them in context. Because scripture is not a bunch of proof texts. It is a narrative that God has given. And then the third thing is as we do that, we want to um, just pull out some little thought, some little idea, some little inspiration that we can take out into the week and, and, and apply in our daily living because um, it's one thing to hear what God says. It's another thing to do what God says. And we want to be a church that hears God speak through his word, and then walks in obedience to that. And so last Sunday we were in Genesis 25, and we read of the descendants of Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael. And we were told that these are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of birth. Nabioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedah, Abdel, and Mibsam. Now I noticed it at the time, but I didn't mention it last week. This double reference here in this verse, it says, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. And then it lists the first one, and it says he was the firstborn of Ishmael. So twice in that verse it highlights the fact that they're telling them in birth order. I reflected on that because as I thought back, back in Genesis we're told that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And the value of reading the story is as we continue to read, we discovered that Shem was not the oldest of the three. But it is Shem's story that we continue to follow as we read through Genesis. And then we came to Terah, who lived 70 years, and he became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And again, we discovered that Abraham is not the oldest in the family but it is his story that we continue to read. 
And then with Abraham's firstborn Ishmael and Isaac his second. Now it's Isaac's story that we're following. As early as the third chapter of Genesis, where we read the story of how sin entered the human story, God has promised that one would come who would bring judgment on the one through whom temptation had come. And so way back in Genesis 3.15, which was about uh, October last year, this time last year, uh, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is talking to the serpent. Between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. This promise of one who would come and bring judgment to the one through whom sin entered the world. And so while it seems more natural to list children in the birth order, the writer of Genesis is clearly more interested in listing the sons first through whom that Genesis 3 promise will be fulfilled. This is not a, just a human story. This is a God story. God is fulfilling his promise. And so when he's talking about the lineage of faith, he is talking about the first priority, not to the firstborn, but to the one through whom that promise will be fulfilled. But of course, with Ishmael twice, it's stated that in the flesh, it's still the firstborn has the priority. And so this morning we turn again to chapter 20, uh, Genesis 25 and verse 19 and we read that this is the account of the family line, line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Paddan Aram and the sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled with each other within her. Now, of course, she hasn't been for a scan. She's just going, there is something unusual happening inside me, and I don't know why. Now, what we know is because she's got two babies in there, but she doesn't know that. Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. I thought, what a wise woman. When you don't know what's happening, go and talk to the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be, the stronger, one will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So they've been married 20 years when the story unfolds. I've always wondered... And this is a little sideline. I've always wondered how Esau comes out all hairy and red and his brother comes out so different. And I thought that's kind of weird. But in my research, I'm reading a little article and uh, this woman is asking these questions from a Christian perspective. And the doctor she's with says, come, I will show you Jacob and Esau. And takes her out to one of the rooms. And there's this twins. And the first one is hairy and red. 
and the other is very gentle and not red and not hairy. Very different, but very much like this. It's, anyway, that's one of those little fascinating sidelines that capture my attention, how easily we get distracted. But right here we have this whole birth order versus the son of the promise. The difference between Ishmael and Isaac was clear. Ishmael, through, though, uh, the son through Hagar, the maidservant, as opposed to Isaac, the son of the promise, through Sarah. But here and now, with Jacob and Esau, the difference couldn't be less. Uh, they're both being born to the same woman, the wife that God had chosen for Isaac. And both sons, these twins, they're together in the womb. It's the first recorded twins in the Bible. Some suggest that maybe Cain and Abel were twins, we're not sure. But apart from that, these are the first twins in the Bible. However, while Jacob and Esau were twins, together from conception, it seems they were as different as chalk and cheese. Potentially as different as Isaac and Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael was told he was going to... His mum was told that Ishmael was going to be a wild donkey of a man. So you get this rough, tough... The same image we get with Esau with his hairy arms and reddish skin. And Isaac, we're told that when he married Rebekah, he was comforted from his mother's death. He was obviously this soft, gentle, feeling man who when he lost his mum, grieved his mum and was comforted by his wife. And so we're told that when Rebecca conceived the twins, the babies jostled within her. Already we know this is not just about two boys. It's like she thought there was trouble brewing. This isn't two boys in her womb, this is two nations. Each of these boys will be significant in their own right. Each of these boys will father a nation. But the greater nation will descend from the youngest son. This jostling, the struggle in the womb is only the beginning. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys. And the younger is grasping at the heel of his brother Esau. And then we're told that the boys grew up and Esau became a skilled hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home in the tents with mum. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. And that is why he is also called Edom. And Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This idea of a birthright hasn't actually been spelled out in Scripture until now, but later on, 
In Deuteronomy 21, we're told that um, if a man has two wives and he loves one and not the other, and both bear him sons, the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love. When he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. This, the son, that son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. This, this, this firstborn, the birthright, was that they would become the head of the family and they would receive a double portion of everything as it was divided up. The birthright is significant. We followed the story of Abraham through. We know how wealthy Abraham had become. And when the servant goes looking for Rebekah, in Genesis 24:36, he says, My master's wife Sarah has borne him a son in her old age, the servant says, and he has given him everything he owns. Forget about a double portion. Ishmael, nothing. The other sons who followed, nothing. But everything that Abraham owns, that great wealth, now belongs to Isaac. And now Esau is prepared to give away that birthright. So basically, if he's getting a double portion, Jacob, my basic math says, that two-thirds of everything that Abraham had would have been Esau's, and he would have been the head of the family. And he gives it away for some bread and some lentil stew. And Esau despised his birthright. There's a lot to come in this story. There's a lot of struggle to follow. There's some fascinating questions to be asked. But the writer here really captures Esau's attitude. He despised his birthright. He was offered so much. And he's prepared to give it all away to satisfy the hunger I feel right now in this moment. And it presents a challenge for me and for you. You see, we've already sung about it this morning. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, when we accept forgiveness that he offers, when we choose to follow him, we're told that to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And in Romans 8, it's expanded. Paul expands, he says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. They, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption. You've been adopted into the family of God. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we, we, are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are ears of God 
co-heirs with Christ. Can you grasp that? This is the creator of the universe who spoke the universe into being. That vast array of stars and planets and universe beyond our imagination. And his son who he sent to die for us. And he says, oh, by the way, you are co-heirs with Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians, we're told that no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Every promise that God has made, they are fulfilled in Christ, and we are in Christ. Do we grasp that? And Esau exchanged his inheritance, his birthright, for some bread and a pot of stew. Because he was hungry, he said, I'm famished. Most of us feel that way if we've missed the meal. He'd been out hunting, but to give away everything? Back in Genesis 3, you remember Adam and Eve? I love that picture. They walked with God in the cool of the evening. What more could you want but to walk with the creator of the universe in the garden in the cool of the evening? And you have everything in that garden, every tree in that garden, all of the fruit in the garden to eat from, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for one piece of fruit, they gave away their birthright. For one piece of fruit. Why? Because when she saw the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. It just seemed right in the moment. Like Esau. It just seemed right in the moment. I was hungry and there was some food on the table and I want it and I want it. birthright exchanged to satisfy the desires of the flesh. Let's think about for a moment about just a few of the promises that God has for you in Christ. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life to the full, an abundant life. In Isaiah 53, surely he took up your pain and bore your suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, this is talking about Jesus on the cross, and afflicted. But he was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that brought you peace was upon him, and by his wounds you are healed. And in Philippians, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. 
We are promised fruitful lives. And in Mark, we're told, then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? A piece of fruit? Some bread and a pot of lentil soup? On the table next to that piece of fruit that caught the attention of Eve and there sits that bread and that lentil stew. And also on that table are a range of things that promise satisfaction, joy and pleasure in the moment. But they come at a huge price. They can keep you from, they will rob you of your inheritance in God. How easily we settle for that one piece of fruit. Our birthright in Christ. Forgiveness, healing, wholeness, fruitfulness, peace, life itself. Your very soul, the very essence of who God created you to be, the very essence of the things that he created you to do. These and so much more, life in all its fullness. They are our birthright. But it's not only the things of the flesh, the temptations, the, the hungers, the desires that we have that can take our hearts, that can capture our hearts, that can draw our attention away from living in the promises of God. Sometimes in the busyness of life, sometimes in, even in the busyness of our Christian living, sometimes even in the busyness of our Christian living, we lose sight of Jesus. While I was away at the um, uh, tribe time in Waihe Beach a couple of weeks ago, I was reading the book The Heavenly Man and um, that morning God had brought this passage to my attention. And then I picked up the book The Heavenly Man and I turned to the next page and it's right there again. And I think this is what we so easily sacrifice our birthright for. In Revelation, he says, To the angel of the church at Ephesus right Now, if you've ever read the book of Ephesians, you'll know that in the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul talks about everything that the church is. This is a great church. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in, your right hand, in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. These seven golden lampstands, each lampstand represents a church. And he says to the church at Ephesus, I know your deeds, that you work hard and you persevere. 
I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, but you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You know, we stand at a point in the road where I believe God is opening up so much before us. I've got to say, I just love this morning. Just listening to the sharing. Just looking around and seeing the faces. I was going to say faces old and new. Some who have been here a bit longer than others. But every new morning, every new day is filled with potential in God. If only we keep our eyes on him. Every new day there stands before us a doorway of opportunity. Will we press in and take hold of what God has for us and what God is calling us to do? Not just will we take hold of what he's promising, but will we take hold of him? How easily it is, how easy it is for us to take hold of what he promises and forget that he is the one that we're invited into relationship with. How much value do we place on his promises? And how much value do we place on our relationship with him? It's not about what we will have or what we will do or even what we will achieve. It's all about who we will love and who we will follow and who we will serve. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.